Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Ventuono, and I am Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. My very special guest for this uh, two-part series is Steve Dittmeyer, and I guess the best way to describe Steve is uh, to say that he has been a career railroader. I entered the industry in 1960, and he has been an integral part of uh, research and test and development in various venues in his career. He's, he's worked for the uh, Missouri Pacific, uh, the Ar U.S. Army Transportation Corps, the Federal Railroad Administration, the Burlington Northern, MIT-educated, Steve is uh, one of the most uh, knowledgeable people uh, in this industry, and we are going to talk about safety, really, the basis of this. Uh, safety, intelligent transportation systems, positive train control. Uh, so, Steve, welcome. Uh, it's, it's great to have you. This is the first time that you and I have, have done this. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. One of the things that you wanted to talk about, let's start with the with safety, with the foundation or the principles of safety, the, the, the basis of safety. Some years ago, Ram LaRue, at the turn of the century, roughly, year 2000, uh, Ram was the head of Spornet, the South African Railways. And he was aware that Nelson Mandela was being released from prison and was going to become the president of South Africa and things were going to change. And he knew his railroad had to make changes uh, as a result of that. He wanted to make sure that the new people who would be coming to run the railroad and be in charge and to succeed him understood what the principles of safe railroad operations were so that they would then understand why they have these complex railroad operating rules and how people need to be trained to, to deal with them. There are several basic principles common to train movement. The first is, and these are not in priority order, but just there are several pieces. One is the rolling stock that make up the trains need to be trackworthy. That, they need to, that there needs to be knowledge on the railroad of that all of the components of those cars are safe and uh, for, for movement along the railroad. That also means if there are problems that do arise with any of the pieces of rolling stock, like an overheated bearing, that that is caught soon enough to prevent any disasters from occurring. The other part is the infrastructure, the information that informs them that the infrastructure of the railroad is trainworthy, that the track is safe, that the track is aligned, that the bridges are safe, tunnels, and so on. Employees of railroads have to understand and do self-examination and determine that they are fit for duty, and also they need to check on their colleagues. Railroading is a harsh environment and people have to be awake, aware, vigilant at all times, and they have to assess the, uh, their surroundings. I've talked about the rolling stock, the infrastructure, and the people, but then where they get combined is in the issuance of 
movement authorities, and that's people and computers, and they need to know the exact location and speed of trains. They need to know the location of maintenance of way forces and and track inspectors so that they can then issue authorities that can be executed by the trains and work authorities that can be executed by the maintenance of way forces. To do that, there needs to be continual communication on the railroad. There's a fifth category, and that's grade crossings. Railroads don't have complete control over them. Technology is available now to keep motor vehicles and trains from colliding at grade crossings. These are the basic pieces that make up the railroad. Expanding a little on movement authorities, they have to be issued and accepted only by authorized persons. So there has to be confidence by the issuer and the recipient that it's an authorized message. And they have to be given very clearly so that there's no ambiguity and no no uncertainty about the meaning of the movement authorities. They have to prevent conflicting movements. There have in the past been cases where dispatchers accidentally issued a movement authority. Better information on status of trains, status of maintenance crews, keeps that from occurring. It's important that train crews comply absolutely with the movement authorities and that these movement authorities do remain active until executed or surrendered or withdrawn. Talking just for a moment about train movements and switching movements, before moving, the route of the train has to be defined and it has to be known that the track is clear. When moving, it has to follow the speed instructions that are in the operating rules and uh, that are in the movement authorities, and they have to adhere to any indications from the track side or any other indications. The train crews must stop a train at the limits of their authority and for passenger trains when and where they are scheduled to stop. When a train is stationary, people need to stand clear. The train must be secured and must be protected. You may have noticed that I've been talking about information. Information is key to making sure that everybody obeys the instructions and that the people who issue instructions have information to make sure that those are safe. The good news is that positive train control is now implemented. And with positive train control comes lots of information. And most importantly, perhaps, is that it It required railroads to implement a digital communications network to tie together the trains, the wayside, and their control centers. The existence of of this digital data communications system is, is so very important. Unfortunately, right now, a lot of railroads are just, just view PTC and the data communications network as being a safety only system. But that data communication system has the ability to expand the the safety coverage of the railroad's technology uh, and systems in place, and to also improve service quality uh, to customers. For example, let's talk for a moment about East Palestine, uh, Ohio. 
there were systems there that were not integrated with PTC. For example, the wayside detectors counted axles, whereas at the AAR's own interest wayside detector stations, uh, there are automatic equipment identification uh, readers that then provide the exact car initial and number of the car that has a hot bearing and, and which bearing it is, rather than forcing the train to stop and having uh, a member of the crew walk back and count axles, especially in a rainstorm or a snowstorm with snowdrifts and so on. That's a problem. Tying a automatic equipment identification to wayside detectors and having those detectors via the data link being able to inform immediately when a hot bearing is detected notify the train crew and the control centers and uh, and also car departments so that they're aware of this. A key word now for where we go with positive train control is integrate the system with work order reporting systems, AEI, locomotive health reporting, wayside detectors, integrate it with track workers uh, systems to, to keep track of where the, the track workers are. Uh, right at the moment, railroads generally have not given their maintenance crews GPS receivers and uh, uh, data radios, but that they need to have it as well to so that the track workers know where the trains are, so that the trains know where the track workers are, and that the control center knows where both of them are. PTC is necessary for improving safety, but it is not foolproof. Would you agree with that? Yes, there needs to be some further refinements to PTC. There needs to be more reliance on train position from GPS rather than from the uh, wayside signals. You need track circuits for uh, determining rail integrity. Uh, at least until some other new rail integrity system is, is developed. What we're talking about here is moving to the next level of PTC, the next level of functionality, uh, as it's commonly called PTC 2.0. We've used it a lot in our reporting. Uh, we know that there is some activity uh, in that area. What's your perspective on PTC 2.0 and and and? What needs to be included in, in the, next, the next generation of PTC to use all that available bandwidth, to make the most out of the massive investment, uh, which was, I think, between 15 and $20 billion uh, industry-wide? Well, first of all, it's not a piece of technology. I have testified at uh, NTSB and at FRA in the past that one of the key things with PTC is a revision to the operating rules. One of the problems right now is that the railroads all agreed when they were implementing PTC that they were going to implement it in a way that would not require a change in operating rules. And so that permits such things as being able to uh, proceed at restricted speed at intermediate signals. It's have to stop at, at the absolute signals, but not at the intermediates. So that means there are still rear-end collisions that are occurring on PTC territory. 
PTC is tied to the wayside signals. The wayside signals, intermediate one says red. They still can proceed at restricted speed. And we, we've seen in the past that running on restricted speed at 20 miles an hour can still kill crew members. Maintenance of way has to be equipped with track forces uh, terminals, they're called. FRA actually some years ago developed a track forces terminals to give to the maintenance crews and maintenance foremen so that their location is reported to the dispatching office and the dispatching office can therefore convey the information to the train. The authorities get granted over the track forces terminals. The, a, a maintenance crew can place slow orders on the track, send that to the, the control center, which then places the slow order in place, things like that. There, there was a, a case uh, a couple of years ago where the Amtrak Palmetto struck an Amtrak backhoe at Chester, Pennsylvania. And that one occurred because the dispatchers changed over, change shift change, and the maintenance foreman and maintenance crew changed shift. And so there was a new maintenance foreman and a new dispatcher. The new maintenance foreman thought he still had the old authority from the, his predecessor, but that one was canceled. And the new dispatcher was simply waiting for the new maintenance foreman to notify him that he needed a, a work authority. He, in a sense, waited too long. But at that time, Amtrak had an approved PTC system by FRA, but maintenance away was still done by voice communications between workers, dispatchers, and so on. That's got to change. The, you want maintenance crews managed the same way that train crews are managed. Their location information is sent to the control center and the control center dispatcher. And so the information is coherent. And when orders are issued, it's clear and un unambiguous. So regardless of whether the operating rules are, are G core, like most of the, the general code of operating rules, like most of the country or uh, NORAC in the Northeast would changing the operating rules. It would seem to me that would be a pretty heavy lift. What, what's your, your thought on that? Because you're then you're talking about retraining existing personnel and, uh, th there's a lot, there's a lot involved to, to change those operating rules. What you're doing is simplifying the operating rules by going to a PTC-based system. I can just speak to when Burlington Northern was uh, demonstrating its Aries PTC system. We had permission from FRA. We requested for a limited time to have Aries be the control system for the Minnesota Iron Range. The train crews understood the new rules very quickly. They, they went through some training. It is not an impossible thing, but you're changing information flows and you're not following red signals, yellow signals, green signals, intermediate signals at all. You have authorities granted and the authorities include speed. So if there are multiple trains in a block, the control center and the dispatcher can keep those, those trains safely separated. I would argue that it's relatively simpler. It simplifies the understanding of the rules. There are fewer words. There are fewer complicating issues. So in your opinion, Steve, why 
were the operating rules not changed to accommodate PTC? At the time of the PTC mandate, the railroads convened their ITC committees, Interoperable Train Control Committees, and the railroad executives sent their signaling departments to those committees to write up specifications for interoperability and so on. Signaling departments loved blocks, relay logic, wayside signals, and I think they were fearful of their knowledge and expertise being valued less as the shift went to train position being determined by GPS and the use of digital data communications conveying the information. It was in those committees that they made the decision that the rule books would not be changed. It was not an FRA decision. FRA did not require it. The law did not require it. Well, Steve, thank you so much for uh, sharing your your thoughts on uh, positive train control and the foundation of railroad safety. You talked a lot about PTC 2.0. In part two of this series, we are going to segue into ITS, Intelligent Transportation Systems, and that's something that uh, that Steve has been deeply involved in throughout his, his career. So, Steve, again, thank you so much, and uh, have a safe day. Thank you.